0: What does God do? In the last few episodes of Thinking Theology, we've been thinking about what God is like, what is his nature, and what is his character. But in this and the next few episodes, we're moving on to think about what God has done and what he continues to do. In this episode, we're thinking about what God has done in creating the world. What does the Bible tell us about creation, and importantly, how does that shape our life? That's what we're thinking about in this episode of Thinking Theology. Hi, my name's Carl Dernick. I'm a pastor, theologian, writer, and Bible college lecturer. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart soul, mind, and strength. Creation is the first act of God in the Bible. We find that on the very first page of the Bible, we're told, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It seems that what those first verses describe is an initial act of God in creating the initial matter, if you like, from which creation would be organized. So God brings matter into existence, but it is formless. Before God created the world then, there was nothing. God created the world out of nothing, or as theologians sometimes say, ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. God didn't use pre-existing material, but He created everything that is. We find that same idea in other parts of the Bible, so Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Of course, that might simply mean that the matter God used to create the world was merely invisible, and He then made it visible— However, other places are much more explicit. So Revelation four verse eleven says, "You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and have their being." If God created all things, then nothing exists that He didn't make. In fact, as the theologian John Frame points out, not only did God create out of nothing, He created into nothing. Not only did God create the matter out of which the universe was made, but he also created the space into which it went. The rest of chapter 1 then describes God's organisation of that matter, and it follows in a very structured pattern to show the logic and the order that God imposes on the world. So the pattern is more or less as follows. First, there's the announcement, and God said. Second, there is the command let there be X, let there be light. Third, there is the separation and structuring. God orders the items he has brought into existence into their proper arrangement. Fourth, there is the report, and there was X, and there was light. Fifth, there is an evaluation. God saw that X was good, that the light was good, or whatever it might be. And sixth, the chronological marker, and there was evening and there was morning, the nth day, the first, the second, the third day, whatever it might be. So there is a careful structure within each day, but there is also then a careful structure between the days. There's a pattern in the order in which things are created, such that day one pairs with day four, day two with day five, and day three with day six. So on day one, light is created But on day four, the light bearers, the sun, the moon, and the stars are created. On day two, the sky and the waters are separated, while on day five, the sea and the sky creatures are created. And on day three, the dry land and the plants are created, while on day six, animals and humans are created. Within that pattern too, the seventh day stands on its own as special. The seventh day is a day of rest for God, Genesis 2 verses 1 and 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. The seventh day is a kind of capstone on the six days that have gone before. But the climax of the creation event, however, is the creation of human beings— God says in Genesis 1 verse 26, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. A number of things in Genesis 1 highlight the special significance of human beings. First, when God comes to create human beings, the pace of the chapter slows down. For the creation of everything else, even big things like the sun and the moon, they're passed over pretty quickly. But when it comes to human beings, Genesis 1 says a lot. Second, human beings are created as the result of a divine counsel. God says among himself, let us make man. Nowhere else in the chapter is there such an obvious and significant deliberation by God about what he is going to create. Third, human beings are the only thing in creation made in the image of God. Human beings are intended to reflect God and represent Him. Strikingly, the same term used here to describe the image of God is the same one used later in the Bible to describe idols. Idols were intended by their makers to be images of gods. And of course, God commanded not to make idols. But whereas idols are dead and lifeless objects that we make to represent what we think God should look like, God himself has created an image to represent and reflect him, and strikingly, that is, human beings. Fourth, human beings are given the task of ruling over the rest of creation And fifth, chapter 2 of Genesis contains a special parallel account that focuses in on the creation of Adam and Eve. If Genesis 1 is the wide-angle shot of the whole of creation, then Genesis 2 is the kind of zoom lens that narrows down to the creation of human beings. Creation is actually a really foundational doctrine in Christianity, and it underpins the whole of the Christian life. But what does it teach us? About God and ourselves and the world in which we live? Well, there's a few things that can be said. First, in Genesis 1, God creates entirely on his own. God doesn't get help from anyone else. He does it by himself and he does it for his own reasons. It was entirely his decision to create the world and to create it as he did. The world is an expression of God's purposeful creativity. Second, God creates simply by speaking. God says, let there be, and it happens. And as it has been pointed out, when God says, let there be, he's not speaking to things that have in themselves the power to respond, but his word itself carries the power to do what it says. That is, when God says, let the water be gathered to one place, the water doesn't hear those words and respond with its own power, but God's word makes it happen. As Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host, by the breath of his mouth. Third, creation is distinct from God. In episode one of this series, we encountered pantheism, which is the view that the universe is part of God, or even that the universe itself is God. But the Bible clearly sets God above the universe, and the universe is something that God has made. It's not part of him. It is his creation and is distinct from him. That's quite different from many of the ancient creation myths that were around at about the same time as Genesis. In those myths, creation is not the ordered, careful work of one God, but creation is often the outcome of God's fighting with each other. The dead body of one God might become the earth. Part of it might become the sky. The blood of another slaughtered God might become human beings. The sun and moon might yet be other gods. By comparison, as one scholar has pointed out, Genesis appears as a thunderbolt. Israel's God is the exclusive creator and sovereign of the entire cosmos. Fourth, the world that God made was very good. The world was exactly as God intended it to be. God said, I want the world to be like this, and it was. And at the end of every day, he looked back and he had accomplished all that he intended. And he looked back at the end of the six days, and it was all that he had planned. Although the world that we live in is now affected by sin, by human rebellion against God, the world that God originally purposed was made perfect. It was free from sin, from pain, misery, and death. Fifth creation is an act of the Trinity. Although it's not explicit in Genesis 1, there are certainly strong hints that that is the case. In verse 2, we find the Spirit hovering over the waters. We find God speaking and the powerful Word bringing things into being. So too in verse 26, we find God saying, Let us make man in our image. There is a plurality in God. Nevertheless, there's also a unity in verse 26 Humanity are created in His, singular, that is, God's image. In the New Testament, those ideas become much more explicit. For example, in John 1, John clearly portrays Jesus as active in creation along with the Father. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made— Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Or in Colossians 1 verse 16, Paul says, For in Him, that is Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Sixth, creation establishes God's authority over the world and over us, because God made us. And because He made everything, He has the right to dictate how the world ought to operate and how our lives ought to be lived. We belong to Him. This world is His. We are His. We are His creatures, His creations. God says in Isaiah 45 verse 12, It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. The implication is that God has the right as our Creator to do as He wishes. He says earlier in verse 9 of the same chapter of Isaiah, Woe to those who quarrel with their Maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does your work say, The potter has no hands? God is God because He made us. He owns us. He gets to decide how things work, not us, just like a potter gets to decide what happens with the pottery that he makes. Romans 1 makes that clear too. Paul says there that although people know God from the world which he has made, we substitute created things and put them in the place of God. We worship and serve ourselves or each other. We break God's plan and pattern for creation. The place that's most clearly seen, Paul says, is in homosexuality. Not because that is a worse sin than any other rebellion against God, but because it's such an obvious rejection of God's pattern for the world. The very structure of the human body as male and female shows what God intended for sex. That foundation of God's authority in creation is really important for communicating the gospel to people who aren't Christians. That's what makes the Gospel summary Two Ways to Live so helpful. It begins with creation. It begins by saying, God is the loving ruler of the world. He made the world. He made us to rule the world under him. But then it explains, we all reject the rule of God by trying to run life our own way without him, but we fail to rule ourselves or society or the world. The consequence is that God won't let us rebel forever. God's punishment for rebellion is death and judgment. Creation establishes God's authority over us as human beings, as his creatures. So too, creation establishes our significance. As we've seen, the high point of creation is the creation of human beings in the image of God. That means human beings are not just another part of creation, we're not just another creature, we're not just The same as a horse or a dog, we're not just random matter that has by chance gathered together over billions of years. No, we're the climax of God's creative work. Not only that, we've been created to reflect God and to represent Him. Creation establishes the incredible significance of us as human beings. Next, creation also establishes our purpose. That's because the Bible tells us that the purpose of creation was to manifest God's glory. Isaiah 43 verse 7 says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So too, creation is often held up as a key motivation for us to praise and worship God. In Psalm 148 we're told, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. And in Revelation 4.11, we read, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. In fact, in Romans 1.21, the core idea of sin that is mentioned is that although God made the world, and although His eternal power are clearly on display in the world, we neither glorify Him nor give thanks to Him. At the heart of sin is our refusal to give God the glory He deserves and thank Him for everything that comes from His hand in His wonderful creation. Creation also sets the pattern for various aspects of life. For example, God's creation work sets the pattern for work and rest. God says to the people in Exodus chapter 20, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Although the law in Exodus comes later, The pattern of six days' work, followed by one day of rest, is found in the fabric of creation. So too, creation establishes the pattern of marriage as a permanent relationship. Jesus explains when the Pharisees ask him whether it's right to divorce or not, he says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Creation grounds and establishes the pattern of marriage. Creation also grounds and establishes the relationship between men and women. As Paul explains in 1 Timothy 2 verse 12 to 15, I do not permit a woman to teach Or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Although the Bible insists that men and women are equal in dignity, it also stresses that there is a structure in their relationship in marriage and also in the church, a structure that reflects God's order in creation. Creation also grounds humanity's care and governance of the world. When God created human beings, he entrusted us with responsibility. According to Genesis 1, we are to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In theology, that's often known as the creation mandate. It's God's commission to human beings to rule over his world under him. We are to cultivate and care for the world and to rule over it. Not in a domineering sense, but in a loving and caring sense. In a way, God has created a canvas for us, the world, and our task is to develop it. Of course, sin has destroyed our rule over the creation. Nevertheless, that was God's initial purpose for us to care and cultivate and rule over His world. Finally, A somewhat unexpected implication of creation is that it establishes human limitations and reveals to us the mystery of God and God's power. In the book of Job, Job suffers all kinds of misery and afflictions, and he struggles to understand why that is. His friends give him lots of bad advice, and Job contends with God and cries out to God to seek to understand what's going on. But God's answer in the end is that some things are just beyond our understanding, and to make that point, God points to his creation of the world. God says in Job 38 verse 4, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, This far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. The implication is, of course, that Job wasn't there, but God was. God and his ways are beyond us, and creation reminds us of that. Especially in the 21st century, we like to think that we can understand the world and everything about it, why things are the way they are and why things happen the way they do. But even the best science is limited. Yes, God has given us brains to observe the world and discover lots and lots of things. That's part of the creation mandate that God has given us. But at the end of the day, we also have to accept that many things are beyond us and we simply have to turn and trust God. Of course, that brings us to the vexed question of how the Bible's account of creation fits with science. We'll come to that in the next episode of Thinking Theology. For the moment, it's simply helpful to recognise how creation underpins so much of the Christian life and our perception of the world, and indeed of God. Creation, we've discovered, is the sole act of God— He made it for his own sake and for his own purpose. He made the world just by speaking. The world that God made is separate from him, but it depends on him. God made it good. He made it. Father, Son and Spirit all involved together in its creation. So too, God's creation of the world establishes his authority over us, as well as our significance, our purpose, the pattern of our lives and our need to trust God in the mystery of life. Well, that's it for this episode of Thinking Theology. If you want to find out more about that evangelistic resource that I mentioned, Two Ways to Live, you can find a link to that in the description. And as I said, in the next episode, we'll be thinking about how the Bible's account of creation fits with the views of modern science. Please join me then.